Good morning, Central Church. How are you today? Fantastic. Um, just a, by way of reminder, tonight at 6 p.m., 6 to 7.30 is our next reveal night. It's a night of worship and praise and prayer. Um, and if you are sick or need prayer for healing or know someone that does, we're going to be taking some time in the service tonight to pray for those who need healing. Um, so it'll be a great, powerful night of worship. 6 to 7.30, child care is provided, um, so you can check that out. Um, when you came in this morning, you should have gotten a white bulletin insert. Go ahead and take that out and tear the perforation for me. Let me explain what we do with uh, those two pieces of paper. The thin portion is a communication card. Uh, if you want to give us your contact information, get on our, our email list. We send out an electronic bulletin every, every week. Um, but on the top of that, there's also a place for prayer requests. If you have need of prayer, someone you care about, someone you love, write that down. And then when you leave this morning, there are boxes attached to the walls at every exit. If you just drop that in there, we'll get that on the prayer list. If you have a physical offering you want to worship the Lord with this morning, a check or cash, uh, you can drop that off in the very same box as well. Let's pray. God, we thank you this morning for your presence among us. You said that where two or three people gather in the name of Jesus Christ, that you are there. So we thank you that you're here this morning, Lord, to touch lives, to strengthen people, to encourage people, to help people, God. We, we thank you that the Holy Spirit reveals truth to us and helps us to understand the Scripture. So, Lord, even now, would you open our minds and our hearts uh, to the teaching of your Word. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, I hope you have a Bible this morning. If you don't, there's probably one in, in a seat back pocket in front of you um, or under a seat if you're up front here. <clears throat> Turn to John, the Gospel of John, chapter 8. John, chapter 8. If you find the New Testament, you're close. You're four books away, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. We're going to be in John's Gospel, chapter 8. We're in, in the middle of a series called The Life. It's a study in the Gospel of John. Uh, Jesus Christ is our source of life. Sometimes success in life determines on our ability to properly identify certain things. So if you want, if you want a successful marriage before you're married, you should, you should probably identify the, the qualities of a good spouse so that when you enter into that relationship, you, you know what you're looking for and there's more compatibility and those kinds of things. So before Shirlene, my wife and I got married, we made lists. Anybody make a list of the qualities you were looking for in, in a spouse? Yeah, so, so like we both made those lists. So mine was like, you know, like, like she loves Jesus, she's super hot, and then whatever comes after that didn't, didn't really matter. But um, no, we made a list and Shirlene and I made a list and then we, then we got married. And, you know, we, we kind of talked about that list. And so when, when I got her, like I got 10 out of 10, like everything I wanted in a woman, like, you know, she loved God, she's servant-hearted, she's hot, all, all of that stuff. And, and when she got me, she got three of the 10. Uh, but I worked really hard at it, so I'm probably up to about a four and a half right now after 40 years of marriage. So, you, you know, there's a lot of research out there about uh, what a productive employee looks like. And in the interview process, you, what are we looking for? What are the qualities of, of an employee that, that are going to, you know, translate into being product, productive? And, and so, you know, when we hire people here, we, we try to, you know, look for those qualities in a person that would, that would really answer that question, what is a, you know, productive employee? What about, what about a ripe cantaloupe, right? Like, what are the qualities? Because you can't see inside of it. So when you go to the store, how do you determine that this is ripe? on the inside. So some people say you can shake it and they say if the seeds are loose in there you can feel them rumbling around that, that it's probably ripe. Some people say you can actually smell it 
And if that, if that sweet cantaloupe scent comes through the skin, that it's probably ripe. Some people say to look at where the stem was. And if it's clean, that means it was probably ripe, more ripe when they picked it and the stem came completely out. If like this one, the stem's kind of still in there, it's probably, you know, maybe not as ripe. Um, so I don't feel like me. When, when I get home after buying a cantaloupe and I take it home and I cut it open, it's like this nasty pale orange looking thing that's hard as a rock and it has no taste. Anybody ever pick those out? Like, who knows how to pick out, like, the really juicy, soft, tender, sweet, like, like talk to me afterwards, I, I, never, I never get it right. What about, what about a follower of Christ? Is there a way to identify the qualities of a disciple of Jesus? Jesus says there is. And in John chapter 8, he tells us what those, what those qualities of, of a fully devoted disciple of Jesus really is. So, so the question is, what are they? What, what does a disciple look like? What are those qualities? And then, and then the next question is, do you demonstrate those if you say you're a Christian? If you identify with Jesus Christ, you say, I'm a follower of Christ, I'm a disciple of Jesus Christ, do you have those marks, those tendencies, those qualities in your life? Well, that's what we're going to look at this morning in John chapter 8. Jesus is going to give us a couple of marks of a disciple. And, and so here's what we're going to do. We're going to look in the mirror today. I'm going to ask you to, to look in the mirror. Can we get that light on here? No, we can't. Okay. Um, and you're going to look in the mirror as we talk about these, these qualities of a disciple, and you're going to ask yourself, are they, are they present in my life? Do I see them? at work in my life. Am I the disciple that Jesus talked about in John chapter 8? So, so in John chapter 8, let me give you the context. It, it hasn't changed. We're still in the temple. Uh, beginning in chapter 7, it was the Feast of the Tabernacles um, in, in the temple. And we, we talked about Jesus standing up and giving the, the famous, if anyone's thirsty speech, come to me and let him drink, and out of his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. And then, and then Dusty did a, a magnificent job, a masterful job last week of talking about Jesus standing up at, at the point in the, in the feast where they light all the lanterns and saying, I'm the light of the world. Well, we're still in the temple, and, and there's thousands of Jews running in, in the temple, busy in the temple with the feast and the activities. And in the midst of that, Jesus is having this ongoing conversation with the Jewish leaders. They're called Pharisees. And he, he's, he's having a conversation, and remember, they're trying to kill him. They, they, they are angry at him because they, they think that he's, uh, you know, putting himself on the same level as God, that he's blaspheming about who he is. So, so they're antagonistic toward Jesus, and there's this conversation going on. And I want you to open in John chapter 8, beginning in verse 24. Jesus uh, said, therefore, I, I say to you, and he's speaking to th those who are opposing him, that you will die in your sins... When Jesus says you'll die in your sins, he means that your sin is going to keep you from God and from heaven. If you die in your sins, you're going to spend eternity in hell. So this is a serious matter. Jesus addresses the Pharisees, the Jewish leaders, and he says, I, I tell you, you will die in your sins for unless you believe that I am. Now, your English versions may say I am he. The, the he isn't in the original language. It's just I am. And thro remember, throughout the Gospel of John, John uses this, this Greek phrase, ego, a me, I am, 
to describe himself. I am the bread of life. I am the good shepherd. I am the door of the sheep. I am the vine. You are the branches. This I am statement, and now here even more clearly, and it takes us back to Exodus chapter 3. In Exodus chapter 3, God revealed himself to Moses in a burning bush. Anybody remember that story? God revealed himself before Moses went to Pharaoh to ask that, that Pharaoh would let the people go from slavery. And so Moses asks God, who appears to him in this burning bush, he says, well, the, the, the Jews are going to ask me, you know, who sent me? What's his name? What's the name of the God that sent you? Pharaoh's going to ask me, who sent you? What should I tell them? And God says to Moses, through the burning bush, just tell them that I am sent me, sent you. I am. And, and in the Hebrew, it's the word Yahweh. Yahweh is one of the covenant names of God in the Old Testament. We transliterate that into English as Jehovah, Jehovah or Yahweh. It's, it's, the, it's the covenant name of God. It's a, it's a derivative of the Hebrew verb to be, meaning this is the one who always was, the one who is and always will be. It's the, it's the uncreated eternal God, the self-existent God, the God that had no beginning and will have no end. That God, the God of covenant with his people, I am. So in the book of John, when, when, when Jesus says, you're going to die in your sins unless you believe I am, he's saying, you're going to die in your sins unless you believe I am God, that I'm Yahweh, that I, that I am Jehovah in the flesh. Skipping down to verse 28. So, so Jesus said to the Pharisees, when you lift up the Son of Man, literally put him on a cross, when you crucify the Son of Man, then you will know that I am. Jesus is saying there's, there's going to come this tragic point in your life if you reject me when you recognize that you crucified the Messiah. You're going to mourn and grieve over the fact that you put to death the Prince of Life. It's somewhere that, that tragic reality is going, to, is going to hit. I do nothing, Jesus says, on my own initiative, but I speak these things as the Father has taught me, God my Heavenly Father, and He who sent me is with me. He's not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to the Father. So Jesus is in this conversation with the Pharisees, but there's thousands of Jews around. And kind of the climax of this conversation and dialogue with the Jewish people and the Pharisees is in verse 30. Listen to what it says. Jesus spoke these things. As he spoke them, many came to believe in him. Many of the Jews put their faith in Christ. Many of the Jews believed that he was, in fact, the I Am that he is the source of living water, that he's the God that can save them, that he's the Messiah of the Jews. Now, the Pharisees and the religious leaders probably aren't among those people right here that turned their life over to Christ. But some, in fact, many Jews did. And so then Jesus addresses the Jews that accepted him. Here's what he says in verse 31. You've probably heard these verses before. Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed in him, if you continue in my word then you are truly disciples of mine, and you will know the truth, and the truth will... Say it again. You've heard that verse before. Right. If you remain in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Now listen to the Pharisees' response, verse 33. They answered him, and they said, We are Abraham's descendants. And we've never yet been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say we, we will become free or that we're enslaved? Now, what's behind that statement and question is a Jewish mindset. A Jewish mindset that said, we are, we are ancestors of Abraham, 
the founder of the Jewish faith. And, and as a result of our ancestry, we are part of God's chosen people. We have been set apart from all the nations of the world. God has given us His law. God has given us His covenants. God has given us His festivals. And eventually, God is going to give us the Messiah, the Savior of the whole world. They're saying, we, we may have been enslaved in Egypt politically. We, we may have been enslaved in Babylon in, in, for 70 years. And we may even be, to some degree, enslaved under the Roman Empire. But, but we are free in God. In other words, we are God's chosen people. That gives us a free ticket to heaven. We get a pass. We're, we're Abraham's kids. We're, we're the people of Israel. We're the people that you chose. And so the Jewish people believed that they were in with God. They were accepted by God on the basis of their ancestry. They were children of Abraham. Right? Look at, look at how Jesus responds in verse 34. Uh, Jesus answered them and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits what? Sin is a slave of sin. So Jesus lets them know he's not talking about political slavery. He's not talking about social slavery. He's not talking about mental slavery or emotional slavery. Jesus is talking about spiritual slavery. And, and he's, he's responding to the Jews and he's saying, it's, it's, it's not based on your ancestry that you get into the kingdom of God. In fact, Jesus is saying both Jews and Gentiles are in the same boat. They're all sinners. Every human ever born into the world, whether they're Jewish or they're non-Jewish, they're Gentiles, they are, they are slaves to sin. They are under the power of sin. The Jews were saying, we're in. And Jesus is saying, no, you're, you're a slave to sin. But listen to what he says in verse 36, verse 35. He gives a little parable or an illustration about who he is. He says, the slave in a Roman or a Greek household, the slave does not remain in the house forever. In other words, he's not part of the family. He doesn't have part of the inheritance. He doesn't have necessarily permanence because the owner of the slave, the owner of the house can determine to either keep the slave or, or release the slave. So the owner of the house has authority. Let me read that again. The slave does not remain in the house forever, but the son of the father in that house, he does remain forever. In other words, the son is the heir. The son is the one that's going to take over. And so in these cultures, when, when a son became of age, the father gave him the authority to either keep slaves or release slaves. The, the, the son, when he grew up, was given that authority to either retain a slave or release a slave. So then Jesus applies that little parable to himself in verse 36, which is a really famous verse that you've probably memorized. Jesus says this, and if the Son makes you free, you will be what? Free indeed, genuinely free. If the Son sets you free. And Jesus, remember, he's saying, I'm God, I'm Yahweh. There is no salvation apart from Christ. He's saying to the Jew and to the Gentile, you're all slaves to sin. But if Jesus Christ, the Son of God, sets you free, you will be free from sin. Jesus is saying, I am the Son in the Father's house, and I have come of age. And the Father has given me the, the authority over all humanity to release people from the slavery to sin. But it's only through Christ and Christ alone. So as we look at these verses this morning, we're, we're going to answer the question, what are the... What are the marks 
the qualities of a genuine disciple of Jesus Christ. The first is this. A true disciple remains in God's Word. A true disciple remains in God's Word. Listen again to what Jesus said. If you abide in my Word, you are truly my disciples, and you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Notice what Jesus doesn't say. Jesus doesn't say, if you abide or continue or remain in my Word, at some point you will become my disciple. That would be a works-based salvation mentality. In other words, if I do something, then I can be saved. If you, if you study the Scriptures, if you learn the Word of God, if you stay in the Word of God, then, then you can become a disciple. If you go to church, if you're a really good person, if you give to the poor, if you do all of these things, then you can become a disciple. That's not what Jesus is teaching. Just the opposite. Jesus is saying, if you abide in my Word, it's an evidence that you already are a disciple. See, disciples reflect this, this hunger, this, this obedience, this desire to be in God's Word. So Jesus is not saying if you do this, if you remain in the Word, you become a disciple, but that's an evidence that you are a disciple. It's one of the fruits. Now, now Jesus, uh, John loves this word remain or stay or continue. He uses it 33 times in the Gospel of John. In fact, he uses this word 16 in 16 of the 21 chapters. And it means, it means remain, stay, continue in, abide in, live in, dwell in, um, don't depart from. There's a sense of continuance and permanence, and there's a sense of, of connection in that. What does Jesus mean by if you abide in my word? What does he mean there? He's, he's not limiting that to, to the teachings that he gave that were recorded in the Gospels, nor is he limiting that to the apostles' teaching in the New Testament. This is all of the Bible. Because remember, God wrote the Bible and Jesus is God. So Jesus is saying if you abide in all of Scripture, if you stay and remain in all of Scripture, that's an evidence that you're my disciple. So, so what does it mean to abide or to remain in God's Word? Well, the first thing is there's, there's a God, God's Word constantly flows into our lives. God's Word constantly flows into our lives. The best way I can illustrate that is with a, a baby in its mother's womb connected to the, the, the mother's placenta by the umbilical cord. Let's throw that picture up there. So a, a baby is connected to its source of life, its mother, through an umbilical cord. The umbilical cord is essentially one vein and two arteries. The vein leads from the placenta into the baby through its navel or belly button. The vein provides uh, oxygen-rich blood and nutrients flowing from the mother into the life of the child. The two arteries coming back uh, to the placenta carry with it deoxygenated blood and waste from the child. Isn't that amazing? Like God created this deal. Where, where this child, this infant, gets nourishment and life and oxygen through the umbilical cord, through the, through the mother, the source of life, and is able to release everything now that's wasteful back into the mother. So, so this constant excuse me, flow of life from the mother to the child is, is kind of symbolic of abiding or staying in God's Word. There's a, there's a flow of His truth constantly into our lives. What does that mean? One thing it means is that we, that we read 
We study the scriptures. We meditate on the scriptures. We memorize the scriptures. We, we learn the scriptures. It, it means that, that there's, a, there's a hunger in us to constantly be fed by the Word of God. Here's the cool thing. You don't have to create that hunger. That's why Jesus can say, you know, if you're a disciple, this is true of you. Because just like this baby in its mother's womb, it didn't create its own hunger. Upon being created, um, conceived in the womb by mother and father, that child is born with an appetite. That child is born with a desire for this food and nourishment that comes. And so it is with us. When we are spiritually born of God, when we are born again of God, there is a, there is a hunger in us for God's truth. So we have to continue in that. So Peter says this in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 2, like newborn babies, he's talking to Christians, long for the pure milk of the Word so that by it you can grow in respect to salvation. There, there's to be this continual yearning, this desire to, to have an inflow of God's Word regularly in our lives. In, in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3, uh, Moses said this, Man shall not live by natural bread alone. Man has a natural appetite and we need to nourish ourselves with natural food, but man doesn't just live by natural food, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So in the same way that we have a natural body that needs natural food, we have a spiritual body that needs spiritual food, and we don't live by only feeding our, our natural body, but by feeding our spiritual body. There's a constant flow of God's Word into our life as nourishment. In fact, Job, in Job 23, 12, he says this, I have not transgressed His commands, but I have valued His Word. I have valued God's Word more than my necessary bread. Think of that. Job said, God's Word is more important to my life. I treasure it more highly than I do the, the necessary bread that I eat every day. Is that true of you? Do you get up in the morning and you are more hungry for, more desirous of being fed the Word of God and having your soul satisfied than you are having your body satisfied? I'll tell you what, most mornings I'm not. Because I want to I get the beast fed, right? I, I want to eat and satisfy that. But, but there's this other hunger in our life, that we're supposed to have a constant flow of nourishment and, and nutrition through God's Word. And of course, Paul said in Colossians 3.16, he said, let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. Can we go to the mirror this morning? Can I just ask, as you look into the mirror, is there a constant flow of God's truth into your life? Are you studying on your own? Are you reading the Scriptures, meditating on the Scriptures, praying about the Scriptures, feeding yourself the Scriptures in your life? Well, th this flow doesn't stop with you doing personal Bible study because the first century church, they went beyond their own knowledge. And here's what it says in Acts chapter 2, verse 42. The first century church, they continually devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. To, to teachers in the church that God had given revelation to, God had given wisdom to. So they not only studied on their own, but they sub subjected themselves, like you're doing this morning, to the teaching of God's Word by someone that has some theological training. So you're to be pursuing teaching, whether it's online, whether it's live, wh wh wherever it is, you're to be seeking more knowledge of God's truth. That's part of what it means to abide in His Word. But it goes on in Acts 2.42, and it says it's not just personal study, and it's not just teachers like the apostles, but it says they committed themselves to fellowship. Th that word fellowship doesn't mean grill out. That, that doesn't mean backyard barbecue. 
What that means, the word, the word fellowship is the Greek word koinonia, and it means to share in together. It, what that means is to share in Christ. This is the gathering of believers together to talk about Scripture, to pray together, to care for one another, and to grow in their faith and nurture their faith. A little bit later when it says the breaking of bread and prayer, that's gathering for a meal. But, but there's this gathering of believers. So are you, are you regularly in a Bible study, in biblical community, learning the Scriptures, asking questions, growing together in your faith? Are you in a life group, a small group of some kind, a community of believers? Because the first century church did that. They fed themselves. They let the Word of Christ dwell in them richly. They subjected themselves to the apostles' teaching, and they gathered for fellowship in small groups. When you go to the mirror, Jesus said you'll abide in my word. Is that true of you? Are you abiding in his word? Is there a constant flow of God's word and truth into your life? The second thing is God's word is constantly applied in our lives. In other words, it's not just heard, it's not just learned, but it's done. It's applied. Now now listen, never perfectly. We're never going to become perfectly obedient to what God asks us to do. So aren't you thankful for grace this morning? Because we fall short of God's perfect word in our lives. We, We don't always fulfill it completely. And so there's grace when we fall short. But here's what it does mean to, to be constantly committed to applying his word. It means that God's word becomes your, your highest level of authority in life. It means that it becomes the absolute rule of your conduct. It means that you no longer are led and marshaled and governed by your feelings, your thoughts, your desires, your philosophies, the philosophy of the world, what your friends tell you, what television tells you, none of that. Your authority as a disciple of Jesus is now the Word of God. And so you apply the Word of God. You submit yourself to the Word of God. So James tells us this in James 1, verse 22. Prove yourselves to be doers of the Word, those that apply it or put it into effect in their lives, not just hearers, who deceive themselves. How, how do you deceive yourselves if you're just hearing the word but not doing? You're telling yourself, I'm, I'm a pretty good Christian. I'm a pretty spiritual guy. I, I'm pretty mature. Why? Because I know the Bible. I've learned it. I've heard it. I've memorized it. It doesn't stop there. James says you need to be a doer of the word. You need to apply the word, not just hear the word. Again, this is the mark of a disciple. This is the mark of somebody that's abiding or staying or remaining in the Word of God. And Joshua 1.8 says this. Joshua says, This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it, think on it day and night, that you may be careful to do according to what? All that's written in it. To do. This book of the law, God's law, shall not depart from your mouth. You shall meditate on it day and night, that you may be careful to to do everything written in it, to apply it in your life. So what does that mean for us? It means that we become servants of God's truth, which means that that if you are not yet married, if you are pursuing marriage, if you are engaged or you are dating somebody, sex is not an option for you until you're married. It means that God has preserved marriage, the, I'm sorry, God has preserved the gift of sex for the marriage relationship. So it's not, it's not an option now for us to sort of play around beforehand because you've surrendered authority of your life to Scripture, not your hormones, not your desires, not your wants, not your flesh. 
Abiding in the Word means you, you submit yourself to God's authority in your life. So, so, so profanity, it's not an option for the disciple. Paul said, let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only a, a word that builds up, that gives grace to those who hear. Let there be no silly talk or coarse jesting or, or profanity. Not an option. For, pornography is not an option for the disciple. Paul, Paul says we are to run away from lust, not run to lust. <clears throat> so many things in the drunkenness, smoking pot, getting high, is no longer an option for the believer. Scripture says don't get drunk with wine, <clears throat> but be filled with the Holy Spirit. So, so those, those lifestyles are no longer an option for the Christian, nor is <clears throat> selfishness, nor is dishonesty, nor is rudeness to people, nor is treating people harshly, nor is greed. All of those things are in the same camp. They, 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 they go against what God asks us to do. And so, so friends, you, you have to go and look in the mirror. We, we have to look in here. We have to ask the Lord this. Is there anything in my life today, as I look in the mirror, that I, that I know I'm not submitting to God's truth? I, I know I'm not doing it. I know I'm not applying it. I'm not, I'm not remaining in God's truth. Is there something that I know I should be doing, but I'm not doing? What is that? Jesus said, if you abide, stay, continue, and remain, walk in truth, that's the evidence of a disciple. So when you look in the mirror, do you see a disciple or a wannabe? Which is true of you. The, the third thing about abiding in the Word is, is God's Word is applied even when it hurts. I don't like this one. I, I wish I didn't have to preach this one. Because there's, there's a, I don't like being rejected by people. I don't like losing friends. I don't like being treated harshly. Here's what Jesus said in, in Matthew 5, 11 and 12. <clears throat> Jesus said, Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. What does he mean because of me? Because of what I stand for. Because of my word. Be, because of my moral objectives. If you identify with me, it's very possible that you are going to be insulted and persecuted and shamed and ridiculed and treated harshly by the people of this life, by our culture. Because our culture is not in step with Jesus and his word. It, it's contrary to that. Jesus said, blessed are you and people insult you and persecute you and say falsely, all kinds of evil falsely against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now friends, let me just say this. Our, our nation has taken a drastic turn in the last few years. Globally, we, we've seen a greater sense of, of liberalism and immorality and it's just increasing and it's probably not changing. We, we, we are in the, the last days before Christ returns. And Scripture teaches us the darkness is going to get darker. And so, so life is going to be more of a challenge for the believer. It's going to be a challenge for you and I to stand on truth when it's not accepted in our culture. It's going to be more and more difficult for us to say, yes, we, we are committed to Christ and we're committed to His Word when we're persecuted and shamed and hated and ridiculed and mocked and marginalized and minimalized in our lives because no one likes that feeling. 
And yet we are entering into a season where if you are going to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, you have to remain in the Word even when it hurts. You have to continue in Scripture even when there's opposition and persecution. I, I wish I could say, yeah, it's probably going to get better. We, we, we'll probably become more liked in the last days, but that's not what Scripture says. Scripture says, Jesus said, if they hated me, they're going to they're gonna hate you because you're following me. So friends, if we are, if we are going to stand in truth, in, in biblical truth, there are so many cultural issues we have to stand for. And so, so marriage is one of them. So, so biblical marriage, what God says about marriage, is, is vital to our culture. And so let me, let me just say what the Bible teaches about marriage, biblical marriage. Genesis 2.24 says, For the cause of marriage, a man, a male, shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, a woman, a female, and the two shall become one flesh. Remember, God created and instituted marriage. And he said marriage is between a man and between a woman. It's a lifelong commitment. We know that he's talking about a woman because God brought them together, Adam and Eve, and said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and populate it, procreate. Same-sex relationships cannot procreate. They cannot produce offspring. God's plan for marriage is a man and a woman, a male and a female, come together for a lifelong commitment in marriage. That's God's plan. That, that's not the world's plan. There's legislation, there's executive orders, there's other things that are happening right now that are saying, no, there's, there's more plans than God's plan. So here's the deal. We are not haters. We are not rude. We are not bigots. We are not angry with people because they disagree with us. We have to simply speak the truth in love. Amen? Amen. We love people. We, we don't need to get in big arguments and be vitriol toward them on, on, on social media. We simply need to lovingly stand and abide in the truth of Jesus Christ. If you, if you abide in my word, stay, even when it's hard, even when there's opposition. That's the mark of a disciple of Jesus Christ. Let's talk about gender for a second. So much confusion today related to gender. How many genders are there? Right? That, that's the question. And, and there's, you know, uh, gender dysphoria. There, there's all this confusion surrounding, all this stress around it with, with our young people and, and so forth. What does God say about gender? God says there's two genders. God said it was this way from the beginning. Matthew chapter 19, Jesus said, God created them, male and female. Notice it says, God created them, male and female. There, there are two genders. And God chooses which gender you are. Remember, Psalm 139 says, God carefully, intricately, with wisdom formed you in your mother's womb. God created you not only physically, but God created a destiny and a purpose to go with your physical body. God has a plan for your life, and He created you in the womb with that plan, and part of that plan is your gender. Part of that plan is the beauty that God created you either as feminine or as male. That's part of God's beauty. And He called you to walk in His purpose. We, we don't get to choose what we feel like is our gender. God determined that by sex at birth. God, Jesus said male and female. There's two choices. And it's based on how God created you because he created you with a purpose. Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 5. God says men are not to wear women's clothing. Women are not to wear men's clothing. What does that mean? Does that mean men can't wear silky shirts and women can't wear pants? 
What does it mean? No, he's talking about an identity. Women are not to seek masculine identity in their life or a male gender. Men are not to seek feminine identity and a feminine gender in their life. That's an abomination of the Lord because he created you with a divine purpose. So we're not haters. We're not mean-spirited. We are, we are compassionate toward those struggling, con- confused over what is their gender. We have to speak the truth in love. Amen? Lovingly abide in His Word. Lovingly stand on truth in a culture that's going a different direction. But friends, it's only going to get darker and the light has to shine even brighter in our lives. The, the last thing, so, so you look in the mirror and, and you say, am I willing to be rejected today? Am, am I willing to lose friends today? Am I w- willing to be talked about in the office today? Am I willing to be ridiculed? Am, am I willing to be mocked? Am I willing to be persecuted? Am I willing to be treated harshly today? That's part of what Jesus was talking about when he says, my disciples stay and continue and remain in my word even when it hurts. The, the second Character quality. The first is that disciples remain in his word, and the second is they, they trust in Jesus alone. They trust in Jesus alone. So Jesus tells the Pharisees that story about the son remains in the house forever, and when he becomes of age, he gets the authority to, to declare a slave free or not free. And so that, that great verse, Jesus said, so if Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has set you free from sin, you're free indeed. There's only one way to salvation. There's only one way to forgiveness. And Jesus told the Jewish leaders exactly what it was. You have to believe in me. You have to believe that I'm the source of life. You have to humble your heart before Christ and put your trust in Christ alone. Not your Jewish ancestry, not your church attendance, not your personality, not your generosity. None of those works It's simply putting your faith and trust in what Jesus did on the cross for you. So when when you look at at the mirror in the morning, are you saying, "Am am I trying to earn God's love? Am I trying to perform for God? Am I trying to be accepted by God by doing all of these things? The only thing that gives us acceptance with God is faith in Christ. You are accepted in Christ by the Father because of what Jesus did. Are you still trying to earn His favor? or earn his salvation. So where are you today? You look in the mirror. Jesus said, disciples of mine abide in my word. There's a constant flow of God's word into my life, personally, through teachers, through biblical community. Jesus said to abide in his word means that you you put it into action. Is God's word your highest authority? Are you submitted to it? Are you following it? even when it gets hard? Are you standing for the truth of God in the midst of a culture that, that rejects it and is mean-spirited and rude and harsh toward people that stand for truth? And are you putting your trust for eternal life in Christ and Christ alone? Would you stand with me this morning? Let's pray. Lord, this morning we thank you that that it is in fact possible to recognize the qualities of a disciple of Jesus. That, Lord, you said someone who abides in your word, continues in your word, has a constant flow of your word into their life. Someone who lives it. Someone who who makes the word of God their highest authority. Lord, someone that is willing to be 
persecuted and shamed and rejected. Lord, would you help us this week to walk as your disciples, to, to, to trust Christ alone for salvation and not our own works, to trust your grace and your love. Amen. A couple reminders as you're dismissed this morning. First, 6 o'clock tonight right here in our worship center, and it's going to be live streamed, is Reveal Night, a night of worship and praise and a powerful time together. We're going to be praying for the sick as well. Child care is available five years and under. If you have a, a prayer request on your communication card or an offering, drop it in the box on the wall at the exits on the way out. And um, if you need some prayer this morning, you just like someone to pray for you, our frontline ministry team is back in operation. So there's going to be folks up here wearing um, central lanyards. And if you just want some confidential prayer, just come on up and they'd be glad to pray for you. Jesus said to those who believed in him, if you continue in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. And whom the Son sets free is? Is what? Is what? Free indeed. Be free from sin. Go in the power of Christ. Amen.